Apologies to those who listened to the previous episode, but there's a very important statement I need to share before we start from renowned Christmas scholar and friend of the show, Benito Sereno. Although in America's commercially driven culture where Target is putting up Valentine's Day decorations on December 23rd, uh, it's common to think of Christmas as ending sometime during mm, your postprandial nap on December 25th. Uh, it is important, nevertheless, to remember that the 12 days of Christmas is not just a song. Christmas is a 12-day season, stretching from December 25th till January 5th, also known as Twelfth Night or Epiphany Eve. I mean, heck, by January 1st, when many people, Americans at least, are tossing their Christmas trees out on the curb, you're only just then receiving your maids milking from your true love. You've got dozens more human-based gifts left to arrive. And even then, taking into consideration the epiphany season, the beginnings of carnival, the hard out for the Christmas season doesn't hit until February 2nd, Candlemas, Groundhog Day. By that date, you you got you to gotta have your Christmas decorations taken down. All of this to say, early January, still Christmas. So, Show some grace to any Christmas-based content creators you know out there who may not have hit a December 25th deadline. Kindness and generosity, friends, for those of us who are late. Welcome to the Weird Christmas Podcast. I'm Craig Kringle. Back when I used to have my nose permanently glued to obscure books of French and German philosophy, I found a phrase that I still love to this day. Two words, always, already. They point to a weird phenomenon where no matter what point in time you're talking about, something else has already happened. Kind of like when I go to the bathroom and my kids have always already clogged the toilet without telling me. Or how no matter how carefully you put them away this year, your Christmas lights will always already be tangled when you get them out next year. Now this is a great phrase for Christmas stuff, since Christmas seems always or always already concerned about stuff in the past. You're always already feeling nostalgic for earlier Christmases. You're always already missing what it was like when you were younger. It always already seems like Christmas used to be more spiritual, more religious, or just generally more meaningful than it is now. Hell, even when baby Jesus popped out, it was always already true that folk had been celebrating midwinter celebrations for as far back as they could think. In other words, all this comes down to one idea. Christmas now seems always already worse than it used to be. Think about that for a second. Christmas is always already worse than it used to be. Even if there were a golden age of Christmas, something about us would be longing for back when it used to be better. Now, it's debatable whether this is a good thing or a bad thing. 
It seems like a bad thing because it means you'll probably always feel really bad about Christmas and have to endure every new holiday pining for the better ones you used to have. But it could also be a good thing if you just remember that every holiday was in fact just as miserable and missing its earlier visions too. But it could also be a good thing if you just remember that every holiday was in fact just as miserable and missing its earlier versions too. In other words, just never expect to be as happy as you imagine you used to be and you'll be fine. I bring all this up because this year I noticed a lot of people talking about how great Christmas used to be pre-COVID. But pre-COVID seemed like I remember lots of people bitching about how they were going to have to be around their Trump supporter uncle or lame Gen Z nephews. I mean, make up your mind. Or what about the whole stupid political thing about how Christmas used to be a pure Christian holiday or other lies? Everyone always likes to paint things in the past as a foil for modern failures. But the actual historical truth is that if you look at the history of Christmas... Most people were always complaining about it in one way or another, and that's especially true of an aspect that not much of us know about today, which is actual American Christmas history. So think about it. Apart from Charlie Brown or Rudolph TV specials, what is there specifically American about Christmas that we can supposedly look back on? Anytime we see quote-unquote traditional images of Christmas, even folk in California or Wyoming will probably imagine Bob Cratchit in London. Christmas trees are German, by way of Queen Victoria. Our carols are English for the most part. Silent Night's originally German too. Hell, even big fat jolly American Santa is, I think, mostly a Dutch import mixed with some other European impurities. Here in the U.S., it feels like we don't have much that's specifically ours about Christmas. But luckily, I met an Englishman who told me I'm wrong. Thomas Smith is an Americanist at East Anglia University who published a book this last year called Christmas Past, an anthology of seasonal stories from 19th century America. And the book made a couple things very clear to me. First, it's that we absolutely do have a bit of an American literary Christmas history over here, just one we don't know as much about as we should. And second, turns out that this very modern complaining about how far Christmas has fallen since the good old days is something we've been bitching about for as far back as he could find. And there is some comfort in that. Next time you're sitting around feeling like part of you should be feeling more connected to your family on Christmas, or that there should be more meaning to it, or just generally feeling alienated and disaffected, Guess what? We've been doing that in our great land for at least 200 years. So your insecurities are part of an ages-long tradition of insecurity. Congratulations! You may feel like crap, but you're among crappy friends. Not sure that's entirely the message Dr. Smith was hoping to get across, so maybe I'll just let him put his work in his own words. The way your book is set up, you've got a lot of... Um, selection. So the majority of it is like an anthology of pieces that most people probably haven't read. Hopefully. Yeah. Yes. Um, uh, yeah. But then you've got a wonderful long essay at the beginning that puts everything together. One thing I was going to ask was you call the book Christmas Past, which, mm -hmm. and I should ask, but I don't know if you call it that or the publisher calls it that, but either way it works um, yes. because it's not only Ghost of Christmas Past and all that, yeah. but it seems like one thing that you're making clear in your essay is how much of Christmas literature is always kind of like trying to, to capture some past that never existed. Yes. Um, and yes. that it's always this nostalgic or imaginative recreation of something that never really was. Yeah. And that's a really, it, it seems spot on first yeah. of all, but it also just <laughs> seems like a really cool way to talk about it and to think about how, Christmas works. Yeah. Okay, good. I'm glad that came across. Because I think that's that's definitely one of the themes that I hoped would jump out at people. That um that yeah, it's always in a constant state of 
looking backwards, always in a constant state of reinvention um, and always hearkening after um, some kind of imagined golden era uh, mm-hmm. from yesteryear. And, um, and that's, you know, right from the beginning of the 19th century, that's where my anthology picks up. But I think you could always, you could take that back as well further probably and, um, and, and trace that right back into, you know, <laughs> at least probably the 17th century. I think at the time when, um, when the Puritans are getting rather antagonistic towards the idea of Christmas, I think even then you have laments for Christmas uh, that, are, that are imagining a golden age as well. So, um, so yeah, so, so yeah, I'm glad, I'm really glad that that, that came out. That was oh, definitely. definitely something I wanted to to highlight, yeah. In the UK, is there that same sense of the sort of war on Christmas and we need to get back to the traditional roots? I mean, I would imagine you don't quite have the religious right in the same way no. over there. You certainly have little <laughs> pockets. But, but there's always, like, we just sort of grew up with that thing of, of Christmas is always being fought over that there are yeah. the people who want it purified right <laughs> and then um and then the people who are just normal <laughs> uh, but but yep. but is there that same sense over there of that sort of battle for it i think only only in the way of um kind of inflammatory commentators trying to import a bit of the culture war gotcha. um, I, I don't think it has the same kind of hold on hold on the conversation around christmas um you know every now and again at the christmas season there'll be a story about someone banning christmas or banning the word christmas or um but but i think it's in a much more minor key um from what i can tell about um how things are over there yeah and so when your book really talks then about 19th century united states that that just comes to the fore like it's already it's i mean you mentioned culture war it is it's always been part of some kind of culture war yeah, and I think that was one of the things that I was even surprised about when I was putting this together. That um, that I that that sense of nostalgia, I knew that that was there already. But I think it's really eye-opening the degree to which, right from the early decades of the nineteenth century, um, Christmas gets taken up, um, Christmas gets politicized, Christmas gets used for a whole variety of propaganda purposes. Mm. Um, and that's you know that's that's absolutely built in across the century, and the the kinds of battles that are fought change. But the idea that Christmas is somehow sacrosanct and and immune from those wider social and political discussions, um, that's not there at any point. It's, it's absolutely yeah. like you say, it's it's completely embroiled in all these different um, issues that that rock America throughout the century, and and Christmas is there at every point. Um, being used in one way or another, and I, I suppose one of the one of the interesting things about that is the degree to which you know religion comes and goes in the in the popular literature of christmas mm-hmm. and that's that that's another thing that i talk about and i think um that was a surprise again to me that now when we think about the um a war on christmas it's the idea that somehow faith has has gone missing from the celebration of christmas or is or is being marginalized and it's uh, christmas is too secular mm-hmm. but actually um you know right at the beginning of the 19th century it's it's the it's the most faithful who are the most suspicious of Christmas. There's still that that lingering Puritan um, uncertainty about the uh, about the celebration, and you know yeah. that that really goes remarkably long into the 19th century. Um, probably you know even in the 1870s, 1880s, there are still people um, who are who are devoutly religious who are very mistrustful of Christmas um, as a as a celebration, as a popular celebration. Um, so that's that's one of the surprising things, um, I think, about um, about the way in which that changes and the way in which Christmas is is uh, is is used in 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 cultural terms and political terms. Um, that idea that the faithful need to try and come to terms with Christmas, which they do mm-hmm. <laughs> by the end of the century, yeah. but but there's a lot of uncertainty on the way there, um, and even 
I think one of one of the one of the extracts that I was most um, tickled by and most intrigued by were the 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 articles written by Robert Ingersoll. So now nowadays he's um, he's rather lost to history, I guess. But in the in the nineteenth century, he was enormously uh, infamous, famous, controversial mm. um, as a speaker and as an essayist because he was well, he was known as the great agnostic. Um, but he, he really he was he was an atheist, I guess as we would call him mm. these days. Um, and he was a very prominent you know public speaker and, and public author who constantly put the case against organized religion who um who rhetorically attacked christianity and i think it's quite surprising that in the 1880s 1890s that ingersoll was out there you know volubly being agnostic or atheistic in the press um on the lecture platform and drawing enormous audiences and so i was really tickled to find him using christmas in that argument as well, uh, which he does on multiple occasions. Um, so I have a couple of extracts from him um, where he, in a sense, tries to take Christmas away from Christianity. Um, he begins one essay by saying, um, you know, the, the best bits about Christmas aren't even Christian. Um, they're pagan. <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, being being forcefully controversial and, um, and, and really knowing what he's doing, I think, by using Christmas in that way. So this is the whole of A Christmas Sermon. 1891 by Robert Ingersoll. The good part of Christmas is not always Christian. It's generally pagan, that is to say human, natural. Christianity did not come with tidings of great joy, but with a message of eternal grief. It came with the threat of everlasting torture on its lips. It meant war on earth and perdition hereafter. It taught some good things, the beauty of love and kindness in man, but as a torchbearer, as a bringer of joy, it's been a failure. It's given infinite consequences to the acts of finite beings, crushing the soul with a responsibility too great for mortals to bear. It's filled the future with fear and flame, and made God the keeper of an eternal penitentiary, destined to be the home of nearly all the sons of men. Not satisfied with that, it has deprived God of the pardoning power. And yet it may have done some good by borrowing from the pagan world the old festival called Christmas. Long before Christ was born, the sun god triumphed over the powers of darkness. About the time that we call Christmas, the days began perceptibly to lengthen. Our barbarian ancestors were worshippers of the sun, and they celebrated his victory over the hosts of night. Such a festival was natural and beautiful. The most natural of all religions is the worship of the sun. Christianity adopted this festival. It borrowed from the pagans the best it has. I believe in Christmas and in every day that has been set apart for joy. We in America have too much work and not enough play. We are too much like the English. I think it was Henrik Heine who said that he thought a blaspheming Frenchman was a more pleasing object to God than a praying Englishman. We take our joys too sadly. I am in favor of all the good free days, the more the better. Christmas is a good day to forgive and forget, a good day to throw away prejudices and hatreds, a good day to fill your heart and your house and the hearts and houses of others with sunshine. I didn't mention this when I was talking to him, but there's a touch of Emerson in there too. But, but yeah, I, it's fascinating to think that he was out there in the 1880s and 1890s um, making those arguments. Because I, I think probably when people imagine the late 19th century, they would think that those kind of opinions would be impossible to express in the public sphere. But, you know, Ingersoll was there. Um, and I think that's an important, important element of, uh, of, of what was happening in popular culture at that point.
So he there's there's one article called the Christmas Sermon, which you know he's using the word sermon ironically there, and mm. then that, a great short essay, "What I Want for Christmas," which is like a kind of um, a kind of Christmas list, and it begins, "I would have all the kings and emperors resign," <laughs> and he kind of he builds from there. Uh, and then he ends by saying, "That's what I want for this Christmas. Next Christmas, I, I may want more." So, um, so yes, yeah, so he's he, he's he's very uh, amusingly inflammatory, and um, and and was very keen on using Christmas just for that purpose. I think so. So yeah, he he's out there as well in that in the middle of that religious debate. That's almost a weird Christmas, I think, element. You know, the fact that um, that that he's uh, he's he's pushing that kind of uh, that rhetoric in the eighteen nineties. Um, yeah, yeah. I'm 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 very aware that um, that. Compared to many of your speakers, this is um, kind of painfully normcore. <laughs> but, but on the other hand, I think sometimes it kind of comes around the corner to a certain extent, and it's some of it's so normal it almost becomes slightly gothic, you know. So right, uh, so. exactly. Yeah, that's that's what I was going to say about some of it is because it's, yeah. it's some of it seems really familiar, and mm. you're like, but this is not what we're supposed to think. Like this, this mm. like the story is that oh no, this is victorian ish times back back yeah. then and so this is you know like prime time for christmas yeah but especially in the u.s yeah it seems like like you said there's much more arguing about it going on and yeah. there's much less of that sort of creating sentimentality and and all the yeah. memories and the, the the trappings that go with it yeah i mean I, and also I, I do think it's fascinating that even though it's there to a certain extent compared to britain and european traditions American Christmas literature throughout this period is really um, does not embrace the ghost story. Does not um, mm-hmm. does not dwell heavily on that yeah. kind of supernatural uh, and strange aspect of Christmas, which is really baked into Victorian literary Christmases. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. You know, you can't you can't you can't miss it when you look at Victorian literary culture. But but you really have to search hard for it in the American scene. Uh, oh, and I know yeah. there's, so there's there's the great. Um, Valancourt collection of um, mm-hmm. American Christmas ghost stories by uh, Christopher Filippo. Yep. But um, but I think that's the only place that really um, that has dwelt heavily on on that aspect of it because it really is, it, you know, you have to look for it. And um, the discourse more broadly is far more about um, both, you know, the domestic and, and ordinary life. Um, but also, yes, absolutely, that kind of political argument um, and cultural argument that, that runs throughout the whole century. It's yeah. you know that's that's what America's haunted by I guess in its Christmas stories. Um, I mean, to a large extent, I guess you know it's haunted by slavery because that's one of the biggest um, arguments that runs through Christmas literature, um, both before the war, during the war, and after the war. Um, so I guess in a sense, maybe that that occupies that that sense of of being haunted by something in the Christmas literature, because that's also something that you can't can't miss. I think in the American literary scene, I like that difference between like the ghost story in the Victorian version and these really sort of truly darker horror things that yeah. kind of run through the, the U S stories like slavery, but also yep. um, a lot of the, the political and the, the cultural arguments that come through here yep. are really hitting it sort of deep riffs and anxieties in, in the culture at the time. Um, so, yeah. so you get, I, you know, it's, it's haunted, but it's also, there, there mm. is that sort of horrific side to it. Um, but, but yeah. about slavery, could you say a little yeah. bit about the, the pieces about slavery and the role of Christmas yeah. and abolition and all that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I guess the most important piece in that regard are the bits from, um, the, the, the narratives of, of those who have formerly enslaved themselves. So, you mm. know, most famously Frederick Douglass, but, um, Solomon Northrop is here and Harriet Jacobs is here. And I think that, 
those are three really interesting passages that give a um, give three different very very different versions of of, of the relationship between Christmas and enslavement uh, in the antebellum years. But I think just taken together, they also highlight the degree to which um, the formerly enslaved and, and abolitionism more generally really really took up Christmas um, in the 1830s, 1840s, 1850s um, and and brought it to, to the abolitionist cause in a way. Um, mm-hmm. You can see the way that um, abolitionist societies um, hold Christmas markets, um, put up early examples of Christmas trees and pay people to come and look at them, uh, or rather have people pay to come and look at them and um, to raise money to um, to fight against slavery. And yes, and, and, and authors like Frederick Douglass use Christmas rhetorically very powerfully um, to point up um, the hypocrisies of of the slaveholding South and um, and highlight the way, you know, the, the, the iniquities of slavery, which, which seem even sharper against a Christmas backdrop um, at the moment that America is, is embracing Christmas as a, as a kind of domestic celebration. This is just a tiny selection from the Frederick Douglass piece in the book, but I think it's really moving. From what I know of the effect of those holidays upon the slave... I believe them to be among the most effective means in the hands of the slaveholder in keeping down the spirit of insurrection. Were the slaveholders at once to abandon this practice, I have not the slightest doubt it would lead to an immediate insurrection among the slaves. These holidays serve as conductors, or safety valves, to carry off the rebellious spirit of enslaved humanity. But for these, the slave would be forced up to the wildest desperation, and woe betide the slaveholder the day he ventures to remove or hinder the operation of those conductors. I warn him that in such an event a spirit will go forth in their midst, more to be dreaded than the most appalling earthquake. The holidays are part and parcel of the gross fraud, wrong, and inhumanity of slavery. They are professedly a custom established by the benevolence of the slaveholders, but I undertake to say it's the result of selfishness and one of the grossest frauds committed upon the downtrodden slave. They do not give the slaves this time because they would not like to have their work during its continuance, but because they know it would be unsafe to deprive them of it. This will be seen by the fact that the slaveholders like to have their slaves spend those days just in such a manner as to make them as glad of their ending as of their beginning. Their object seems to be to disgust their slaves with freedom by plunging them into the lowest depths of dissipation. For instance, the slaveholders not only like to see the slave drink of his own accord, but will adopt various plans to make him drunk. One plan is to make bets on their slaves as to who can drink the most whiskey without getting drunk, and in this way they succeed in getting whole multitudes to drink to excess. Thus, when the slave asks for virtuous freedom, the cunning slaveholder, knowing his ignorance, cheats him with a dose of vicious dissipation, artfully labeled with the name of liberty. The most of us used to drink it down, and the result was just what might be supposed. Many of us were led to think that there was little to choose between liberty and slavery. We felt, and very properly too, that we had almost as well be slaves to man as to rum. So when the holidays ended, we staggered up from the filth of our wallowing, took a long breath, and marched to the field, feeling upon the whole rather glad to go, from what our master had deceived us into a belief was freedom, back into the arms of slavery. 
so yeah, so so abolitionism really latches onto to Christmas very early uh, in the nineteenth century as a as a trend, as a theme, as a moment um, to take stock, to try and um, help others, I guess, um, in in line with 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 that theme of Christmas, uh, goodwill to to all men, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But I guess yeah, the 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 darker side of that as well is the degree to which um, the slaveholding South tries to do the same thing and and is not shy itself of using Christmas in a propaganda sense, um, attempting to to kind of lay hold of of Christmas as a celebration as well. Um, because of that early Puritan resistance to Christmas, um, the South constantly presents itself as the, the true home of Christmas uh, in America. Um, and it attempts to suggest that 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 the actually Christmas is an example of the ways in which slaveholding is not is not a truly evil enterprise, and it you know has its has its elements of benevolence. So you know, absolutely, you know, using Christmas for for propaganda purposes in that sense. So that's yeah. that's before the war. You know, during the war itself, both sides absolutely weaponize Christmas. Um, and you know, it's not that Christmas suddenly fades away from the scene during wartime because people have other things to worry about. But you know, if we're thinking about a war on Christmas, this is the moment at which um, that that war is absolutely mobilised right. um, by both the North and the South. Um, in, in you know, in, in amusing ways. I mean, I, I think it's funny that the South has a real antipathy towards Santa Claus <laughs> for, for a lot of the nineteenth century because Santa is seen to be um, a Yankee, basically. See, that's the funny. Southern author William. Yeah, William Gilmore Sims calls him a, a little Manhattan goblin. <laughs> and, so, <laughs> which is, and, and so for those kind of commentators, um, you know, as far as they're concerned, it's Father Christmas who is the, uh, the southern gift bringer because they're carrying on the true spirit of, um, of the old world. Um, that's funny. So that, dis- that distinction between Father Christmas and yeah. Santa Claus, that's real, which is, I think, unintuitive because I think most of us would think of Father Christmas as something specifically English. Mm, that's interesting. And yeah. uh, at least over here, I, yeah. I think that idea. And so to have him be more associated with the South, uh, yeah. usually for us, I think it would have this connotation of being less cosmopolitan or, yeah. or being more cosmopolitan somehow. Which is, yeah, yeah, I see what you mean. Um, yeah, that is interesting. And yeah, so, but yeah, what was the relationship there? Because that's one thing, you know, everybody loves sort of history of Santa Claus stuff. So yeah, how, how did yeah. that split on on how nor- the sort of North and South Santa? Well, I, I think it's just a, a, a couple of, um, right, just on the brink of war and during the war, that's when that really, that, that antipathy towards, towards Santa seems to be strongest. Uh-huh. I guess because I suppose, you know, gosh, I mean, you know, other people who are much more knowledgeable have written plenty about the, that kind of genetic evolution of Santa, right? But, um, but it's clearly, it comes from kind of New York, points around there, right? Um, yeah, as, yeah. as 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 Santa evolves within America, um, so I guess that sense of association, that sense of um, sectional disagreement, flows flows through into into the into the gift bringer world, right? Yeah. <laughs> that, uh, such is the bad feeling at that point. Um, but it'd be interesting to I, I I I can't tell you when, but it would be interesting to know when when the South kind of embraces Santa, and um, because I I can't imagine that there's a there are pockets of Father Christmas. Um, holdouts in the South anymore, right? I think probably yeah, Santa has, has claimed That would the, be fascinating. If there were, yeah, has yeah. claimed the scene, yeah. There are groups of sort of in the Appalachians that still do um, uh, like Belsnickel. Oh, right, yeah, yeah. The sort of famous thing was in that in the show The Office that Dwight has, mm-hmm. you know, he still has Belsnickel and whatnot. Yeah. But that's actually 
true. <laughs> so yes. like there, there definitely are still pockets of that, but yeah, uh, yeah. But that's a totally different tradition. That's yeah. more from the European side of things. I would, I would probably wager it was more of a rhetorical gesture at the time, even you yeah. know, yeah. Um, yeah, and might not have had too much um, foundation in in mm-hmm. the way that people actually played out Christmas on the ground, if you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Gotcha. But, gotcha. but I think, um, in a way, the the stranger part of the story is what happens after the Civil War, um, and I talk about this in the introduction, but. But it's after the Civil War that the South really um, tries to use Christmas for for propaganda purposes. Um, Because it's always one of those remarkable things that I think, you know, those of us who spend a lot of the time in the 19th century are used to, but um, but it might not be felt more widely. But there is a strong sense that the South loses the fighting war, but across the last decades of the 19th century, it kind of slowly wins the propaganda war. Hmm. because stories about romantic Christmases on the plantation um, really explode in popular culture from the 1880s onwards, really. And that's not just in the South, that's in the North as well. And the North happily embraces them, it seems. Um, and so the Christmas's final act in that kind of um, essential conflict that, that runs throughout the whole of the 19th century in America is really to help with that process of reconstruction. And so you know there's a whole world of um of stories about christmas on the old plantation um that circulate really widely across america and really help to um cover the horrors of the plantation past with this patina of romance that we can see you know carrying through more broadly in in popular culture um so it is a it is a kind of tragic story really if yeah. you like in that sense well, i was going to say it takes that whole idea of Christmas always being something that's sort of over romanticized and over nostalgic mm. about a past that wasn't there, but now yeah. it's actually <laughs> doing yes. some dirty work. Yeah. That's, that's, that's a great point. Yeah. Cause it is, it is, it is doing that same work of looking back to an imaginary, imaginary time that absolutely never existed, but in ways that have very real kind of political and social consequences in the late 19th century. Um, so yes, that, yeah, I think that's, that's a really interesting way to look at it. Yeah. All right. Well, what are some of the surprises that you found or more unusual things, whether or not they're yeah. they're heavy and serious or just odd? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. One of the, 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 the quietly fun ones is um, is the Frank Norris story that's in there. Um, and you might and people might know Frank Norris from from a book like McTeague. Um, so classic bit of American naturalism. Um, not the kind of guy you think would create um, uh, a, a Christmas story that was that was kind of reprinted as a gift book and uh, and and, uh, and handed out, but um, but I think you can see the 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 story that that I print in in this anthology. Um, it's called Miracle Joyeux, so like joyous miracle, mm-hmm. um, and it's a story about um, Christ, and it references um, the, the kind of n- the nativity at the beginning, um, but it 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 kind of draws on the Christ that, that, that you can find in the apocryphal Gospels. And this is the second version of the story, which is, um, which is a bit more gentle. But in the first version of the story that Frank Norris published, um, you know, in, in line with the kind of Jesus that we find in the apocryphal Gospels, um, the, the, the young Christ child ends up blinding two people. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so, so I think that's an interesting story that, that has a, a certain amount of weirdness in it that, that, that still carries through. Um, even though that the, the, the most weird elements of it 
have been excised um, in this version. But I think you can still get a sense of its a certain peculiarity um, that runs through it. So that that's a really interesting one, I think. Is the original available online? Yeah, I think if, if you route around, you can find it. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. That's like that's the second time that infancy gospels have come up. On, a bit on this yeah was it, was I, it benito serino who's talking uh about well he he does that all <laughs> yes. the time yeah his yes, stuff yes, but, yes. but then also a cup when i i cheated and just had a couple friends from grad school who are medievalists oh I, yes I, like tell me about medieval christmas yeah and they, they, they were like yeah, we don't know anything um <laughs> and so they but they came up with great stuff but uh but yeah, yeah but, but uh she mentioned it as well um she was yeah. like you should definitely go back and look at some of this stuff for very different ideas of yeah. baby and young young jesus yeah yeah and, and frank norris really um kind of picks that up and uh, and plays around with it that's awesome. in uh, in miracle joya so yeah so 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 i think that that's that's a, that, that's one where there's a certain amount of, of weirdness that you can still just about touch i think in yeah. there um i guess it's, yeah, another surprising one was was america's relationship with charles dickens and in a sense um that was one of the things that um that kind of provoked me into writing this book because um you know dickens is is still the dominant 19th century literary representative of christmas mm -hmm. i yeah. think that's you know that's that's nothing's going to shift that in a sense but right but uh, you know in, in a sense i wanted to to illuminate lots of other stuff that was going on as well right but um but i think yeah so first of all it's interesting that when he first releases christmas carol america kind of resolutely ignores it <laughs> because America is, is is in a sulk with Charles Dickens because um, in the previous year he's travelled to America, mm -hmm. um, travelled widely around America and written his travel book, uh, American Notes About America. Um, and America is very disappointed in this book because Dickens <laughs> is not entirely complimentary about what he finds <laughs> in America. So in a sense, they're freezing him out just at the moment that he publishes Christmas Carol. So it takes it takes a surprising while for um, for America to forgive Dickens and to embrace funny. Christmas Carol. Um, but I think it's it, one story that I didn't include in the anthology, which which I came across because it's it, it, it's kind of a fun concept more than it is an actual uh, a good read. But um, just after Dickens dies, so a time when. Um, Lots of people are, you know, paying tribute to him. Um, an author called Frank Stockton um, writes a parody of Christmas Carol uh, that gets published in, in Scribner's magazine, 1871. And so he has this um, unsympathetic landlord um, who is visited by a series of apparitions. Um, but instead of, um, of, of the kind of the, 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 the Kensian spirits we're used to, he's visited by uh, a fairy, a giant, a dwarf, and then finally, a talking mackerel. So, <laughs> so and, uh, and I think there is a sense that that kind of puts a full stop, in a sense, on the Dickens era to a certain degree. And I think that there's a sense that America is um, is a little saturated by the kind of Dickensian uh, Christmas story at that at that point. So, um, so I thought that was quite fun. Um, I think one of my favourite stories in the collection is um, Christmas Jenny by Mary Wilkins Freeman. Mm -hmm. um, which is about um, a kind of hermit, a woman who's a hermit who lives up in the woods. And she only comes down um, to the local village really at Christmas time, uh, which is when she brings um, uh, evergreens uh, to sell um, to decorate people's houses for Christmas time. And again, as it, as it plays out, it has a certain um, sentimental quality to it. But, uh -huh. but I think there's something really interesting in that image um, that she creates of, of this woman who, uh, who kind of lives by herself off in the woods, only appears at, at Christmas time, bringing all this greenery with her. Um, so yeah, I think it's quite an evocative 
story. And in a sense, it feels like she's she's kind of creating um, a female rival to to Santa Claus, right? Someone who that's awesome. Who has a who's almost like a kind of green woman figure mixed yeah. up with Santa because she only appears at, at, at Christmas time, but she brings all this greenery with her. So, so I think that's a really that's a really uh, interesting story because it. it, it on the one hand, it's, it has a certain kind of sentimental conventionality, but on the other hand, it's got something that feels really kind of deep and interesting going on uh, underneath it that hits yeah. a kind of that, that kind of a kind of pagan sense of Christmas. And I feel like I totally whiffed on that because one thing I was going to say is that in the pieces that you have, one thing that seemed a little just definitely not the four was how much of the those sort of pagan sides of the tradition hmm. were in a lot of the pieces, but yeah. yeah, you're right. Except for that one. Now that I'm thinking about it, I, I totally, <laughs> that goes in a different direction. Well, it's, it's, it's a gentle one, that one. That's the thing. It's kind of like, like lots of Mary Wilkins Freeman story. They're kind of really gently surprising. Yeah. And when, and so, as soon as you try to get to grips with them, you think, Oh yeah, this, what's going on here. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's really interesting. But no, I was thinking how, as I was reading the pieces, a lot of them seem to miss the sort of, um, allusions to folklore or traditions or some mm. kind of more local history that I think yeah. you'll still get even some, in some of the ghost stories about like very local traditions that, that even if it's just a ghost from, from this place, uh, uh, but yeah, certainly yeah. you get that in German, German stories or German writing from the time. But, but yeah, that was one thing that was absent, that sort of mm. lack of deep history. Yeah. Uh, and I think in, in a sense, maybe that's because I think what you can see in this anthology is if there is a if there is a, a kind of a local place in the American Christmas tradition at this point, it is in print culture because so much of it is being invented mm. in the moment, yeah. and it's yeah. and it's through print culture that that people learn about Christmas that then they reinterpret it in their own sketches about Christmas. So actually, I think you know in America, in many ways, it is that kind of public sphere of, of print culture in magazine stories and articles like the sort that are collected in here that that actually America really builds its own sense of Christmas, which is I think is why I felt that you know the the, the literary side of that had been neglected because it seems so important, as you say, in in try in developing those that sense of of, of Christmas culture. Um, because it, there aren't necessarily those elements of local history and folklore to go by. I mean, there's so many, so many stories throughout the 19th century which are about so and so's first Christmas. Yeah, because you know, there's a previous generation who who didn't have any sense of Christmas. So it's often it's children trying to fight to to have their own Christmas. Um, that you know, they 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 talk to little Tommy down the road and he tells them he's putting his stocking up tonight. And so, and so they they run home and try and lobby to put their stocking up um, to um, to varying degrees of success depending on the kind of story it is. So um, so yeah, so I think you can really see that 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 these stories almost fill that role of um, kind of local history and folklore. That's cool. That means that this stuff is the the thing itself when it comes yeah. to American Christmas. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Yeah, because as you mentioned that, I think about um, Tara Moore, who did the first oh, yeah. Valancourt book, and she did a separate book on yeah. uh, Christmas writing and print culture, but how she's – but that's a very different story of how yeah. things were kind of being created in the UK by – pulling from all sorts of different earlier print traditions yep. and, and stories. And, and I mean, some things that were still going on with like how ghost stories were popular at yep. the time, but here, yeah, it's more about, you know, they're creating things in the moment. Yeah. And um, yeah, that's a great book. And I think actually, yeah, it, it, in, a, in a sense, as you say, what Tara Moore talks about in there highlights again, how different it is in the American tradition. Um, 
and how much doesn't kind of cross-reference into America, actually, as much as it is very much a transatlantic literary culture, a transatlantic Christmas culture, um, and America definitely pays attention to what's going on in Britain. That, you know, that, that's certainly true, at least you know, early on in the century. Um, but yeah, I think it highlights how different the American literary yeah. scene is. Yeah, yeah. I think the William Dean Howells story is also, um, you know, definitely fits into a certain weird aesthetic. I mean, William Dean Howells is, um, you know, probably the most important literary commentator in America uh, in the late, in the latter part of the nineteenth century, and uh, you know, he's. He's very interested in formulating this this new culture of American literary realism, but what, one thing that I was surprised about is is how much he also picks up on Christmas as a literary concern, and how much how much of his thoughts are directed towards um, Christmas literature, and, and broadly speaking, how much he absolutely hates Christmas literature. Um, <laughs> he, he's, he's absolutely kind of frustrated with the way that it has to dominate so many of so many pages in the magazines uh, come come December, and because uh, he's, he's a journal editor as well, so he's also you know personally stressed out about having to find Christmas content um, for 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 his journals every every Christmas time, um, and so he he really kind of lobbies hard to um, to kind of push writers away from. The Christmas story, um, or at least you know, as as he sees it, have them be far more concerned with a kind of a, a realist aesthetic as they're writing about Christmas, which I think you can see certain writers pick up. But I think it's fun, therefore, that he he still writes a Christmas story um, in 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 a collection of um, children's stories that he puts together. But it is but it is itself a kind of critique of the Christmas story because um, actually listeners might know this because. Um, it is adapted by Disney um, in in one of the Mickey Mouse uh, Christmas specials. It's um, it's it's Donald Duck and his nephews Huey uh, Huey Louie and Dewey who, um, who 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 act out this story. Oh, that's right. That's, so I yeah, so totally it's, um, forgotten about that. Yeah. yeah, so it's Christmas every day, um, and in the story, it's Hal's daughter who wishes it could be Christmas every day, um, and Hal's you know narrates the story to her of what it would be like if if there was christmas every day yeah, and things yeah. get more and more absurd uh, and more and more upsetting so it's it, even though it's a christmas story it's still a kind of anti-christmas story right. that Howells is writing so um so i think that's uh, that's a fun one and uh, yeah people may know it even if they don't think they know it as well okay so this is just a piece of william dean Howell's story Well, after it had gone on about three or four months, the little girl, whenever she came into the room in the morning and saw those great, ugly, lumpy stockings dangling at the fireplace and the disgusting presents around everywhere, used to just sit down and burst out crying. In six months, she was perfectly exhausted. She couldn't even cry anymore. She just lay on the lounge and rolled her eyes and panted. About the beginning of October, she took to sitting down on dolls wherever she found them, French dolls or any kind. She hated the sight of them so. And by Thanksgiving, she was crazy and just slammed her presents across the room. By that time, people didn't carry presents around nicely anymore. They flung them over the fence or through the window or anything. And instead of running their tongues out and taking great pains to write, For dear Papa, or Mama, or Brother, or Sister, or Susie, or Sammy, or Billy, or Bobby, or Jimmy, or Jenny, or whoever it was, and troubling to get the spelling right, and then signing their names, and Xmas 18-whatever, they used to write in the gift books, Take it, you horrid old thing, and then go and bang it against the front door. Nearly everybody had built barns to hold their presents, but pretty soon the barns overflowed, and then they used to let them lie out in the rain or anywhere. Sometimes the police used to come and tell them to shovel their presents off the sidewalk, or they would arrest them. And it goes on like that. I think probably in some ways the most shocking story is... um 
Rebecca Harding Davis's The Promise of the Dawn. And, um, you know, Rebecca Harding, talking about developing a sense of literary realism, Rebecca Harding Davis is really on the, the kind of cutting edge of that in American literature. Um, you know, she starts writing pretty much just as the Civil War um, breaks out. That's when she first is first published. And, um, you know, it's clear as soon as she starts writing that, she, you know, she there's a new kind of spirit and quality to what she's what she's doing. Um, but she writes quite a number of Christmas stories still as well. But they are, I mean, the, the one I include in here is, is so hard hitting. It's, it's such a shock to yeah. come to it after um, some of the more sentimental stories um, from the antebellum years. Um, because she kind of takes on every every social issue in there, um, you know, poverty, um, industrialization, and and most prominently prostitution, which again is you know absolutely kind of pushing the envelope of what it's um, what it's acceptable to to talk and write about in in Victorian America. Um, but yes, the her central character is is clearly uh, is clearly a prostitute. Um, she's a drug addict, um, you know, and this is all going on in a Christmas story in eighteen sixty three. So. Um, so yeah, so that's 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 a really um, interesting read, I think, because it's it's so it's so hard hitting and it's so it's so grim at certain points um, that it that I think it's really surprising that um, that it's that it's being published as a Christmas story in the eighteen sixties. I'll just read part of the end. Christmas Day had come, the promise of the dawn, some time to broaden into the full and perfect day. At its close now, a still golden glow, like a great peace, filled the earth and heaven, touching the dead lot there, and the old man kneeling beside her. He fancied that it broke from behind the dark bars of cloud in the west, thinking of the old appeal, Lift up your heads, O ye gates, and the king of glory shall come in. Was he going in, yonder? A weary man, pale, thorn-crowned, bearing the pain and hunger of men and women vile as lot, to lay them at his father's feet? Was he to go with loving heart and do likewise? Was that the meaning of Christmas Day? The quiet glow grew deeper, more restful. The bell tolled. Its sound faded, solemn and low, into the quiet, as one that says in his heart, Amen. I just think that's a beautiful little passage. There is a kind of fun example that is almost a kind of ghost story at the um, at the end of the century when... Um, the American writer Stephen Crane um, moves to Britain and he's pretty near the end of his life at that point. Mm-hmm. But, um, but he, he, he rents this kind of falling down country pile um, in the, in somewhere in the countryside in Britain. Um, but he invites um, to spend Christmas with him, a, a really interesting cast of um, cast of authors, including HG Wells, Henry James, and others um, to have a to have a, a kind of a last blowout really at Christmas time, um, but he also gets them to collaborate on this uh, on a play which he calls the Ghost, which is clearly a nod to um, to that kind of uh, mm-hmm. Victorian ghost tradition. Um, but his great wheeze is that he he gets he gets everyone who attends the party to contribute something to this play script, um, and that can just be a word. They can just write the or it. And uh, and he lists them all as as collaborators on the uh, <laughs> on the program. And so this 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 play, which only really exists in fragments nowadays, um, is performed just once uh, on December twenty eighth um, for for a party of I imagine very bemused um, local villagers, <laughs> and uh, and is never seen again. Um, and I think that's that's a really that's a nice end point to the century. Actually, it's it's you know it's uh, it's right at the turn of the century, and it seems to be a kind of um, a farewell to that to that Victorian tradition. Um, and it's nicely transatlantic as well, I think, because because yeah. uh, it involves so many people. 
I just got to say, I think in general, it's so nice to have this because there's no real sense of an American mm -hmm. Christmas tradition. I think, I mean, we yeah. have, we have TV, right? yeah. like for <laughs> us, it goes back to Rudolph yeah. and, um, and movies and, and yeah. wonderful life. Like it's a, we have, we've got plenty of visual sort of literary culture <laughs> for, right. for Christmas, but I don't even think most people think of, Christmas Carol really as like they think of the a movie version of it. Well, that's that interesting. Like, but not really yeah, yeah. Not really an active literary culture. And in fact, mm -hmm. there's one thing, if there is a project I'd like to do sometime, um, I would love to do a study of Christmas and science fiction and fantasy oh, right, um, yeah, yeah. in the 20th century. Um, because there you actually do have people just because that's already sort of a huh. really tight knit group anyway, of people who yeah. are reading each other's stories and whatnot, but yeah. they do sort of play off each other and, and huh. things and whatnot. Um, no, but, other, but, but that's, that's very, again, very sort of very niche. And, yeah. but, but as far as the culture goes, I just don't think we have any sort of yeah. sense of our literary history. Yeah. What that goes. So in, that serves such a huge oh great that's a, that's a benefit i mean <laughs> just having this to, that's, to be yeah that's absolutely what i was what i was hoping to try and communicate with it because um you know there's there's some really great books about um the social history of christmas in america but mm -hmm. but they're just you know i wanted to find that 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 kind of literary tradition because it because it, it, it was so obviously there you know like over 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 a you know large number of years of rooting around in in 19th century um, periodicals and, uh, and publications you couldn't miss it. You know, Christmas is, mm -hmm. is omnipresent, you know, come December, pretty much every, every periodical is publishing a large amount of Christmas content. But, yeah. but I think it had always been um, kind of dismissed because of that, in a sense that um, that sense that it was seasonal and, um, and, uh, and therefore very um, kind of ephemeral. Yeah. yeah. Kind of uh, lingered, but, but actually, you know, it's it, one thing that I found remarkable is that pretty much every, Every major American author you can you can link to Christmas at some point. You know, everyone is writing about it. Um, it's it's a theme that unites pretty much everyone you can think of. Um, and yeah, and I think it really is a rich tradition that also gives you another way to look at the development of American literature um, because you can absolutely tra trace the, the the changing contours of American literary life um, by the way that that Christmas stories are told. So it's a kind of double double duty in that sense, right? Yeah. It's, it's resurrecting that forgotten literary Christmas in America, but it's also a new way to think about the entire trajectory of American literature. Um, and the Christmas story takes us through that, unlike any other, any other theme or, or genre, I think. Yeah. But like you said, too, since it was so based on sort of ephemeral reading, like magazines and, mm -hmm. and stories that came up, that aspect of sort of print culture is something that, at, at least in literary departments, we just haven't done for a long time and, yeah. and haven't looked at. So now that it's yeah. become more normal, to bring that stuff in, then yes. we can start actually recognizing that as yeah. really part of what's going on. And I think, you know, d digitization over the last 10, 20 years has really helped with that as well. Oh yeah. I mean, that's, um, it's been, that's kind of liberated a lot of this material as well from, <laughs> from, from its archival prisons previously. Oh, okay. That's but, great. Um, so is there anything else Christmas that you're working on or did this just kind of come out of yeah. some other, other, no, this this has been yeah you know, like a bubbling away for a while, and um, it, it it kind of well strangely enough, it was also kind of came out of my teaching because um, for a long time um, when I teach the kind of nineteenth century survey course mm -hmm. um, that we do, um, I, it always ended around Christmas time. So um, so I developed this Christmas quiz because every single author that we were studying on the on the module had written about Christmas 
at some point. So, yeah. so you could actually, um, I could actually do, okay, you know, who, which of the authors that we've studied had this to say about Christmas. Oh, um, and I think that started to um, make it clear to me how, how kind of ubiquitous Christmas really was as a subject, and the, you know, linking really disparate and diverse voices in, in, in the American tradition. Um, but yeah, no, I definitely, yeah, I, I've always loved Christmas as well, just, just in kind of pop culture terms. So it's a kind of, um, a kind of dream project for me in that way. But, um, but yes, no, I think I will definitely, uh, there'll be another Christmas project somewhere down the line. That's awesome. But, um, but I'm still, I'm still, still working on that one at the moment. Well, the book is called Christmas Past, um, Anthology of Seasonal Stories from 19th Century America. And Tom, thanks so much for for talking to me about this. And I hope definitely hope people will check it out, especially if you're in the US, because then it'll make you know that you actually do have a little bit more of an American literary tradition when it comes to Christmas. Oh, thank you for having me. It's, uh, it's been great to talk. Again, the name of the book is Christmas Past, an anthology of seasonal stories from 19th century America. Links are up at weirdchristmas.com, and I really do recommend getting a copy of this. Now, in honest fact, the stories do really range from like the heartfelt to the traditional to the very historically odd and interesting, the ones that we talked about. Um, but it's a fascinating read with a ton that I guarantee will be new to you. Links to both Amazon and the publisher are there depending on your ethical buying standards. Don't forget to check out the story contest from the last episode. And if you enjoyed it or enjoyed this episode, please consider buying me a tip at ko-fi.com slash weirdchristmas. That's ko-fi.com slash weirdchristmas. I pay for the contest through donations at Ko-Fi and through Patreon, where you can also check out weird Christmas goodies throughout the year. The more I can make through those sources, the more and bigger prizes I can give out for the contest. I've still got a couple more episodes to go before I crawl back into hiding. I know your decorations are probably gone if you're listening in January 2022, but if it's December 2022 for you, then hey, this seems right on time, and I'm not going to say any more. So guys, until next time, please don't let Santa stuff you in his bulging, sweaty sack. There's a war on, but it's Christmas. Christmas Eve.